Welcome to the Trinity Forum Conversations podcast. We normally publish a new episode every other week, but today we're giving you a bonus episode of our recent conversation with Keith Getty. In this edited version of our online conversation from earlier this month, Keith talks about the formative power of hymns and specifically of Christmas carols. We're fearfully and wonderfully made. We, we remember tunes and we forget sermons, not because we're bad people, but it's because how God made us. That's, that's how we are. And the carols are special because I think for a number of reasons. In life, you know, repetition is a form of liturgy. And each Christmas, the liturgy of singing provides such an opportunity for us. Liturgy shapes how we think. And so singing these Christmas carols every, every year, whether you're a liturgist or not, is a form of liturgy that allows you every year to shape the end of your year with them. You can find the full video of this conversation, as well as our full catalog of event videos on our website, ttf.org. And check out the show notes on this episode for links to further resources. Here's Cherie Harder. As we move further into Advent and the anticipation of Christmas, one of the undeniable delights of the season is gathering together to sing Christmas carols. Carols may be just about the only songs out there that actually close generation gaps, are equally known by grade schoolers and grandparents, and prove so consistently popular and beloved that radio stations now start playing them even before Thanksgiving. But as our guest today will discuss, Christmas carols are not only about festivity, but also formation. For all of the delight they bring, they stand as musical masterpieces that teach deep truths, embed them within our memory and consciousness, and unite a disparate people in praise and cultivate and orient our sense of joy. It's why, he has previously argued, the church needs to think more deeply and talk more intentionally about singing, and of course, needs to sing. And it's why the joys of caroling also serve the very serious purpose of forming us to more closely resemble him whose coming we celebrate. And so it's a real pleasure to get to introduce our guest today, someone who has thought deeply, written wisely, and sung joyfully on the subject, musician and hymn writer Keith Getty. Keith, along with his wife, Kristen, are Grammy-nominated musicians and the preeminent modern hymn writers of our time. From the time back in the year 2000, when Keith first wrote the tune for the hymn in God Alone on the back of a Northern Ireland electricity bill, they began writing together and championing hymns and are now the authors of many of the best known and most widely sung hymns in the world. They founded Getty Music to encourage collaborations around hymnody and developed a catalog of hymns that crosses genres of traditional, classical, folk, and contemporary composition, for which work they were recently honored by Queen Elizabeth as an officer of the Order of the British Empire. They are also the parents of four daughters, the authors of the best-selling work, Sing, How Worship Transforms Your Life, Family, and Church, and the creators of the Getty Irish Christmas Show, which has toured annually since 2011. So for those of you who are in New York, they are actually playing tonight, I believe, at the Phillips Theater and tomorrow night at the Carnegie, at Carnegie Hall. And for all of our DC viewers, they will be coming to DC in the next few days and playing at the Museum of the Bible from December 11th to 13th. And I believe we have a lot more information on that in the chat feature. So Keith, welcome. It's great to have you on. 
Hey, Cherie, greetings. It's from, greetings from the Stanley Theater. We're up here in, in Utica, in New York. It's a gorgeous old historic theater here, and uh, we're so excited to be playing tonight. Uh, I'm so excited to be with you guys now as well. Well, we're really delighted to have you. So starting out, it seems that it is it seems highly unlikely that someone would, in his mid-20s, write one of the best-selling and best-known hymns of all time on the back of an electric utility bill, unless a love of music had long been instilled into him. So I'm curious just how you first came to love music. Yeah, well, first of all, the, the, in, the In Christ Alone story is 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 kind of a little bit of a mystery to me. I've, I've never been able to repeat it, so I, I really do think it was a gift of the Lord above all, all above all else uh, i grew up in a christian home got into music and was pretty obsessive about it from the age of 10 really did nothing else probably spent five six hours a day in total doing music and but also i love church music of all kinds around about 18 broke into the music industry at the privilege of uh i was just finishing high school and uh i was studying flute with sir james Galway, and, uh, and he had been henry mancini had been his arranger and got lung cancer and he needed an arranger for a project and he liked my arrangements and asked me to step in and that catapulted me into doing a lot of work in the in the commercial music industry and uh, we started a charity in ireland but at the same time i also had this amazing evening just before i went to college where uh, I went to hear a man called John Lennox who came to visit Ireland and spoke. Uh, he was from Ireland and he inspired me that night. I got to go to supper with him and he encouraged me to do music. And uh, he said, rather than being, being a pastor, he said, be the best musician you can be, but make sure your faith continues to grow faster than your music. And as those things went on, I, I tried to work on both, but I felt a curious discomfort, nay, anger, at what was happening in church music around the world. It seemed neither biblically deep and rich, nor was it of artistic of artistic beauty and integrity that would that would draw people and that would last. And it certainly wasn't uniting families and congregations, in fact, quite the opposite. And so we created this catalog of, we wrote this series of songs, which we called protest hymns. One of them was written in the back of an envelope and uh, I'd say in the kindness of the Lord, and Christ alone was the first one out of the box. So the rest of life was history. I ended up marrying John Lennox's niece. And uh, a few months after that, we quit the music industry entirely to spend the rest of our lives really just trying to steward and encourage and publish and write great hymns that can help build the next generation of believers, our children, our grandchildren, as we move into what is such an extraordinary season to be yeah, a Christian. Absolutely. World. You wrote something in your, your book saying that really struck me, though, which I wanted to ask you about. And you wrote that people are taught by what they hear, but they are catechized by what they sing. And that there's no songs that plumb the richest doctrinal depth as the carols. What is it about singing the carols that, that goes beyond just the delight of singing or, or even instruction and actually goes to catechesis? Yeah, well, I think I mean, yeah, it was it's, it's formally it was a it was a, a Scottish politician in the nineteenth century said I, I wish not to write when he was asked about the fact that he had written he had actually in his lifetime written some of the laws of his country he said I, I wish not to write the laws of my country if I could only write its songs. In fact, it even goes back to it even goes back to the Greeks. Uh, I forget which of uh, the Greek Greek guys was, said something very similar that if I can write the songs of my culture. That will be that will that will have more to the, changing the profound imagination. The Bible itself is a book which is which is is twenty percent songs and poetry, and indeed the command to sing 
is the second most common command in scripture. So it's obviously something that's very important to God. When I tell my girls something, they sometimes obey, they sometimes don't. But when I tell them a, a number of times, they know it's extremely important. So it's, for, first of all, to, to, to reflect on your first comment, it is part of how God has made us. We're fearfully and wonderfully made. We, we remember tunes and we forget sermons, not because we're bad people, but it's because how God made us. That's, that's how we are. And the carols are special because I think for a number of reasons in life, you know, repetition is a form of liturgy. And each Christmas, the liturgy of singing provides such an opportunity for us. There's a, a famous story told of the church having a potluck dinner and uh, a little boy goes up to the pastor and says, in front of all the kids and goes, Pastor, why is it you always say the grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of the Lord stands forever? And the pastor pauses and goes, that's why. He walks away. The illustration being that the repetition of things, the liturgy of things is what helps us understand it. Um, Winston Churchill, Winston Churchill famously after World War II, when they were debating how to, how to repair the parts of the Houses of Parliament that have been destroyed by the Luftwaffe. The proposal was made that it should be an egalitarian parliament where we sat beside each other. Churchill famously said, we choose the shape of our buildings, and thereafter our buildings shape us. Liturgy shapes how we think. And so singing these Christmas carols every, every year, whether you're a liturgist or not, is a form of liturgy that allows you every year to shape the end of your year with them. Now, of course, of course, many of my friends say it's important we sing, and many of my well-meaning friends say it's important we sing good theology and singable melodies. I know what they mean. It's not, it's not wrong, but it's it's not a full truth because the reason carols are sung is not because they're good melodies or good good theology or singable melodies. It's because they're also stunning art, you know. And so, if you take something like Hark the Herald Angels Sing," you're combining Charles Wesley's lyric and the the melodies of of Felix Mendelssohn probably one of the top 10 melodists in the history of Western society, for sure. So you, so you look at that and, uh, you know, you, you take that lyric, it's, it, it's a good theology. Yes, but it's more than that. It's hail the heaven-born Prince of Peace, hail the Son of Righteousness, light and life to all he brings, risen with healing in his wings, mild he lays his glory by, born that man no more did may die, born to raise the sons of earth, born to give them second birth. Hark the Herald Angels sing. But what he's doing there, he's taking you in this wonderful crescendo. He's using language and he's flowering it. It's, it's, it's truth that is just firing us. It's bursting. But we can't help it in the same way as he does with something like And Can It Be and Conversion. So, so the carols give us a liturgy. The carols also are beautiful art. And, and we get to sing them together. And then also, I think the practice of Christians just singing together as people, generationally, as families is such a huge thing as well. So we love it. And, uh, and, and interestingly, and interestingly, I think for all of us, I presume, presuming most people here um, are convinced by the Christian faith, it's a wonderful opportunity to share our faith um, in that in the, uh, movies, uh, Hollywood, um, Wall Street, retail, everybody uses Christmas carols for taglines. You know, so they're still very much part of, of mainstream culture and all great art by definition, becomes part of mainstream culture. And the carols have successfully done that. So they're a wonderful gift. You can listen to Hark the Herald Angels Sing, being sung by Frank Sinatra. And he wasn't really meditating on the words, but he just loved to sing it. And his people loved to sing it. And he was he was always fairly, fairly well aware of the stats of how successful his songs were. And he knew that it was successful. So, I mean, he was happy to sing it. And so it's a wonderful chance. I mean, we, do, we do each year, you know, we our, our Christmas show has been on PBS, it's been on BBC, 
And we've had wonderful partnerships with those groups. And I don't think any of the, I don't think any of the people involved in the production of either were people of faith, but they, they've enjoyed working with that. So it's a wonderful opportunity for all of us, whether at a family home level, whether at a local church level, whether at a community level, or whether at a broader level, uh, to share our faith as well. Oh, there, there's a lot there, and I want to dig into a lot of it. Well, one thing that occurred to me while you were talking, I'd love to get your thoughts on, it sort of reminded me at one point, we had hosted Jeremy Begbie, who had had sung for us, and compared the Trinity to a chord, and talked about the fact that often, one of the reasons why the Trinity is so hard to understand is we, we're a visual culture, and we tend to use you know visual metaphors. But if you think about the Trinity actually as a chord, three distinct notes all distinct, but omnipresent, blending together in beautiful harmony. It's almost easy. You, you gain an insight you wouldn't have otherwise. And, and I'm curious as to whether you think that there are truths or lessons that are accessible to us through music uh, that may be, um, that may elude us otherwise. Yeah, multiple levels. Jeremy Begbie, of course, who, who's, who's a dear friend and who, who comes to the Sing Conference every year, expresses that much better than I do. But carols remind us of those things. Harmony reminds us of those things. I tend to work as a, Jeremy's more of an academic, I'm more of a songwriting practitioner. And I, I'm more interested in how the two work together. For example, great songs are essentially onomatopoeic. You know, they're not just singable melodies and sound lyrics. They're actually words and music that, that feel right together. Do you know what I mean? They just go. And so whether it's home, home in the range, or, or Silent Night, or Joy to the World. You know, they sound like they sing. You know, they, they have this kind of mysterious way of joining us together. And what happens with that, again, is it comes back to your catechesis question that we never even got to, which is that we remember the songs forever. That, you know, if I told you 10 of the greatest pop songs of all time or 10 of the greatest hymns, I guarantee you in 90% of the cases, you could tell me the first time and first place you were in the world when you heard it. Because they just have that way of, of sinking deep into one's mind, uh, into one's emotions. I remember with my dad going to visit my grandfather in the last years of his life. And we didn't even know my name anymore. He still recognized hymns. He could still viscerally react to hymns. And he knew them. And I think that is, that's one of the huge warning signs for our generation. Is if we've gone from knowing a hundred great hymns of our faith into our old age, which we sing as consolation and as hope and as peace and the next generation only have five to ten we have we have robbed ourselves and it's not just that's not just a pro him thing previous generations had similar relationships to the psalms as well which ours don't have so it's a huge concern that whether you're a mom or dad or a grandparent or a sunday school teacher or a worship leader or a pastor that all of us are loving the people around us and loving the people in our care enough to be teaching them and sharing with them beautiful hymns of the faith, whether they're Christmas carols or others. Yeah, going back to something you said a little bit earlier, you mentioned the importance of singing, uh, not just singing, but singing together, singing in congregations. Why, what do we gain from singing with others that's different than just singing by ourselves? And why is it so important to sing in congregations? Well, of course, the obvious thing is we, we, sing, we, sing, we sing to one another because, first of all, because we're commanded to. The Lord commands us to multiple times, not only in the Psalms and the New Testament, 
and, and other places. It is, a, it is a command. And indeed, if we think, of, if we want to think about it at the macro theological level, you know, the picture of heaven that we have, we much of it's in our imaginations and is left to, and is left to slightly deluded speakers and slightly ambitious movie makers. But what we actually know is that it is every tribe, nation, tongue, and people singing together. So we know that that's part of heaven. And so, in a sense, singing together on earth is a microcosm of that. It is a holy privilege that all of us have to gather together on Sunday beside all the people who are we have dysfunctional relationships with and still sing to our Lord. So we do it because we're commanded to. We do it because it's a picture of, of, of heaven. Um, we do it because we're created to. When we sing together, it warms up our singing. And um, it's part of, as Jeremy Begbie said in your program, it's part of how God has made us in our DNA, regardless of how good or bad we are at singing. But I also often, to be honest, I often remind you know, the people we lead with on a Sunday, we, we're, we are singing in this service, yes, because we're commanded to, yes, because it's good for us, yes, because God is worthy of our praise, yes, because it's the thing of heaven. But the person in the room in front of you today might be in some silent dismantling of their lives. They may be somebody who's yet to believe. They may be somebody going through deep, deep sadness. And us all singing to one another galvanizes and encourages. And so we're singing to show our, our solidarity with the people in the room as well. We're singing because we love each other. Right. You mentioned just a second ago the fact that, um, you know, later generations don't remember quite as many hymns or carols as perhaps previous ones do. And if you can correct me if I'm wrong, but I have heard the report that your wife literally put together a soundtrack for the world debut of each of your four daughters. So essentially they entered the world with, you know, pre-selected music playing. So clearly you got, you both have given a lot of thought into how to, to inculcate a, a love, an appreciation for music. So it, I'm sure there's probably many people here watching, listening, who sort of think like, they would love to kind of pass along that kind of appreciation and love, but are not exactly sure how. How do you think about instilling and cultivating that that love for your own children? Um, so lo love and singing? Is it yeah, the, the love of singing and the love of music. And and yeah, yeah, I mean, it's kind of funny, I guess. In some ways, we're a little bit different, but in some ways, we're exactly the same as everyone else. You know, obviously, our kids grew up in a, a home of singing, but what, what we do is, I'll tell you what we do. We, we just do a thing called Hymn of the Month in our house, and Kristen puts it up. She puts it up on a chalkboard, then she puts it up in their room in the lyric of the Hymn of the Month. And I'd like to tell you, we're one of these perfect families, you know, who, you know, you know, teach our kids, catechize our kids every night and teach them, teach them Old Testament Bible languages at eight o'clock every night. But we don't. We just, we're just normal. We just do almost nothing. But once, once every few days, We'll get time to teach them about the hymn and we'll get them to pick in a big word and ask them what it means and discuss what it means and discuss what this means for our lives and how we can how we can learn and grow. But most nights we just stick the song on Spotify and play it and sing it once to the kids and then say the Lord's say a prayer and the Lord's Prayer. Amen. You know, so it's more most days it's just that. And just the repetition of it, I think. The repetition of it, you know, has helped them learn those songs. It's not a magic bullet for them to become Christians. But what we do know is that, is that you, you know, you, you train a child in the way they go and the truth will not depart from them. Whether they depart from it, we've got to be very careful about that. But the truth will not depart from us. So we want to fill our kids with deep truths about the Lord and, and not diluted truths about the Lord. Christian radio, for example, 
you know, is a largely owned, is, is in, in significant part owned by Wall Street for a start, and is aiming to reach two different types of people, uh, a, a woman in her 20s and a woman in her 40s. And so they're trying to write songs that are less than three minutes long, but use very easy discernible words and can bring those people comfort. So if you're building your church worship language out of that, those two ideas, which a lot of churches are, that is a far cry from the song, the Psalms, who are talking about a God of goodness and a God of creation and a God of, who's worthy of praise. But they're also talking about a God who is just, a God who cannot deal with sin, a God who loves the poor, who, who, who is omnipresent who knows what we are thinking at all times, as well as God, of course, who's a, a shepherd and longs to forgive and desires our praises. But we also, in those songs, can can lament and can weep and can mourn and can be silent and can come before the Lord with our questions. And so I, I, think, I, I think it's really important that we build a healthy understanding of God in the songs we sing. And if we don't, we have to accept that God has made us people who are split a song. So if we're not filling our kids' minds with songs, then Taylor Swift, Disney, and company are going to for us. Do you know what I mean? And so that's why we can't just be passive on this. We can't just, for the person who's not musical, they can't just go, yeah, well, that's not really our thing. We'll just leave it. No, we have to be, we have to be proactive. You have written, what, probably hundreds of hymns at this point, and um, no, far more than I. That hundreds of good ones, I'll tell you that. But <laughs> <laughs> in many ways, music, um, like poetry, it distills and compresses language. And we're actually at a time when a lot of our language is muddied. Facts are disputed, information streams are siloed, cognitive biases are more easily confirmed. There's a lot of manipulation around our language, uh, as well as the media through which we receive it. Uh, what role, if any, do you see ancient hymns and Christmas carols playing as an antidote to the linguistic confusion of our time? Well, I think... It's a wonderful question. I'm not sure I have a precise answer for you, but I have a few reflections. And the first one is this. The first Sunday we came to America and we were, we were at our friend Alistair Begg's church and the opening prayer after the opening hymn, the pastor got up and made a few beautiful comments about the greatness of God. And he says, and after a week like the one we have had, it is with relief that we lift our eyes to the one who is from everlasting to everlasting. And so I think there's something about singing and worship with, with, with beautiful hymns that lifts our eyes beyond the, the, the mess of society around us. It's interesting, we're opening the, our, our Christmas show, the first half is about Irish culture, the second half, it's really just our Irish artistry and virtuosity. The second half is an Irish lessons and carol service, and then we do an Irish jam session, an Irish party afterwards. It's kind of the kind of the three things our country are known for, our culture, our religion, and our partying. If, if, if we've got a fight in the lobby, that would be all four. But but um but we opened the second half the lessons and carols with this year with a carol called Let O Mortal Flesh Keep Silent, you know, which is from the fifth century, the, the liturgy of St. James. But it was this cultural idea that we don't listen to our flesh. Our life is not about self-actualization or self-help. It is not about giving us all the things that we desire, but it's actually about silencing our flesh and turning to the one who can save, 
to turning to the one who is our creator, who is our redeemer, who is our judge, who is our salvation, and who is the God of our worship. And so I think a lot of it is actually found in that. The great thing about Christmas carols, to answer the Christmas carols thing is, I actually think they are they are brilliantly cross-cultural, uh, multi cross-ethnic. And this is where hymns really help us. If you sing modern worship songs, and I'm including myself in this, by the way, you're probably singing a song. There, there's a 75% chance you're singing a song by a guy between the ages of 35 and 55 who lives in, the, in, a, in one of seven wealthy suburbs in the world. That's actually what 75%, because that's 75% of us fit into that demographic. I have to ask, you know, there are probably many people listening who are somewhat like me. You talked about blind spots. I don't know what the equivalent is for like maybe a tin ear, you know, yeah. uh, hungry for music, uh, curious, just can't carry a tune in a bucket and, it, you know, and find it somewhat discouraging. It's almost a little bit like being colorblind, that there are you know, dimensions, it seems like other people like you hear and resonate to and intuit and delight in that seem a little bit inaccessible to those of us who, you know, perhaps have less than perfect pitch. What, what encouragement or what counsel or guidance do you give to to folks like us who who don't have the ear, you know, who uh, some people see through a glass darkly, we hear, <laughs> a, I don't know, through an ear thickly. Like well, there's just kind of a lack there. What what, I what good we do to, to love think, I, better? Well, I'm exactly like, I'm exactly like that when it comes to golf, and I still love it. <laughs> <laughs> I still love it. I, there's a very low ceiling to where my ability will ever go at that game, but boy, yeah. do I love it getting out there and having fun. So. We, we, all have, we all have things we're good at and not good at. And because we have a God who is interested in, in, in art and creation, he's a creative God. If you're a musician, the hours of practice are important. The detail is important. Each note, each rhythm, each harmony is of value. But for all of us who sing, the Lord hears and delights in what we do. Our, one of our guys tonight, Zach, in the band, who's been with us 10 years, he, he his siblings are all remarkably creative. And he, he always says that they got to love him through their dad. But until they were like a significant age, they thought all dads only had one note because their dad, their dad was almost clinically pitch <laughs> clinically out of you know, bone deaf. And uh, they just thought that's what dads did. But their dad's love and passion for singing to the Lord was what grabbed them. So I think I think ultimately we, we were all commanded to do it. So for those of you here in the pew struggling, you do it. For those of you here are leaders, don't don't give in to the temptation to either write for the choir because it sounds so good or play to the people who sit in the front two rows and put their hands in the air every second chorus. You know what I mean? But actually lead everybody, encourage the whole congregation. It is communal activity. That's great. Thanks, Keith. Finally, as promised, the last word or song is yours, Keith. Last year, we, we, did, we took the carol in the bleak midwinter and we paired it at the end with going home to the tune of Dvorak's Ninth Symphony because that exact day, a hundred years ago at Carnegie Hall, the Dvorak Stein Symphony being premiered. So I thought in honor of that. So we put we put that to the end of it. And we've kept it in this year where our, our backing vocals do this kind of amazing black gospel sound. And uh, so she finishes in the bleak midwinter and they then come in with going home, going home. And uh, last night um, at the concert, a dear friend afterwards shared that they had buried their father two weeks to the day previous. And the closing hymn was going home, going home. And I, I thought a lot about it. All of us have reached the end of another year. We only have limited 
numbers of Christmases. I don't know how many more Christmases I have. We've had bereavements in our family uh, in the past week. And, you know, all of us are going through, all of us are passing through. Kristen added to the show this year, Wayfaring Stranger. And they do a beautiful Middle Eastern music as we think about specifically what's happening in the Middle East at the moment. And she did Wayfaring Stranger. Um, the sense that all of us are passing through. And I think all of us this Christmas, we want to re- we want to have the consolation of knowing the love of Jesus and of singing joy to the world from, you know, Psalm 98 that inspired Isaac Watts. But we also want to be aware that this life is just passing through. We are here for a moment. John Calvin said that the ground between this life and the next is but a tissue. And so that we measure our days with that, with humility and with urgency and with joy that we learn to care more about the things that matter and learn to care less about the things that don't. Thank you to all of you for joining us. Have a very Merry Christmas. Thank you for listening to this episode in our series on navigating the challenges of modernity. Be sure to subscribe to Trinity Forum Conversations podcast to make sure you don't miss any future episodes. And if you're enjoying these, please leave us a review. Visit our website at ttf.org for more information and show notes from this episode, as well as resources such as our Trinity Forum readings and videos of our past events.